I got to tell you, yesterday I went out that door, ended up somewhere upstairs. I couldn't find my way out. This facility has more bathrooms than any facility I've ever been in. Every door I opened was a bathroom. I thought as God tried to tell me something, I couldn't figure out what it was. Oh, I admire you here at Riverside. I do. And the vision for the Dream Center and all, the impact you're having in this city. I wish every city had a Riverside. I really, I'm serious. And when I found out I was coming back to Peoria, and I'm coming back again this year, I hear, but I was coming back here to this church. It made my year. This morning, they better start the clock back there. You'll never get me off this stage. This morning, again, I want you to use your minds. If I get to your hearts, I want to do it the biblical way through your minds. You don't go, Christianity, you don't go to the mind through your heart. You go to the heart through your mind. All doctrine, everything starts here. Our knowledge of Christ, everything starts here. And then affects every area of our life. So please take what I say and share and weigh it. I have had the privilege of working with young people now for 54 years. When I started ministry, the Dead Sea was only sick. (laughs) Some of you don't get that because you don't know what the Dead Sea is. But anyway, uh, I've worked with young people. And a question has stumped me for a long time. What engenders a young person to believe? Have you ever even thought about that? What will motivate your own children to want to follow your values, know your Savior, live out your word? What is it that will do that? I struggled with that for several years. Finally, the light came on, and I want to talk about it this morning. I want to put it in the context of a graphic that is a pyramid. A pyramid, the top part is one's behavior. That's what you see when you look at a young person. It's kind of like a pyramid, I mean an iceberg. The behavior is that little tiny piece of ice above the water in your sight line. Everything else is massive underneath the water. Well, when we look at a child, we see their behavior. We look at a person, we see their behavior. Now, what drives one's behavior? Oh, folks, it's your values. Your values drive your behavior. You give me a couple hours of young people and I can tell you what their values are. Your values drive you. But what forms your values? It's your beliefs. Your beliefs form your values that drive your behavior. Now, I take another word for beliefs, your world view. What is a worldview? It's how you view the world. The way you view the world, especially if it's a biblical viewpoint, has the greatest effect upon a child's behavior, one's worldview. But what engenders a worldview? What engenders belief in a young person? What would cause your young person to want to know your Savior, to live out your values, to know your truth? Finally, the light came on. And what it is, is relationships. It is, folks. Relationships engenders beliefs that forms our values, that drives our behavior. In Psalm, the Word of God says, David said, for I'm constantly aware of your unfailing love. Constantly aware of your unfailing love. 
What did that do for David? Now notice what he said. And I've lived according to your truth. If David had not seen that unfailing love, and even then he blew it, he never ever would have lived according to God's truth. In um, Psalm 86, is a prayer that David prayed that I bet every one of you hope your children, your grandchildren will pray sincerely this prayer. When David prayed this, would you go to the next slide, please? Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Isn't that what you want for your children, your grandkids? Isn't that what? What, what was David's motivation to do that? What would be the motivation of your children to do that? Watch it. For your love for me is very great. It's relationships that engenders beliefs, that forms our values, that drives our behavior. In Ephesians, it says, but speaking the truth. That's what you want here at Riverside. Thank God that's what you have here at Riverside. That's what you want with your children. That's what you want when you bring in a speaker like me or someone else, to speak the truth. But what was the context for the condition? Notice this. But speaking the truth in love. The in love does not make it true. Come on, you can teach truth with hatred and it's still true. (laughs) Nobody will want it, but it's still true. What love does, now listen carefully, love cultivates the ground to receive that truth. Whether with your own children, your grandkids, with others in the community, whatever. Love cultivates, fertilizes the ground to receive that truth. Here are three phrases that motivated me in raising my four children and now seeing them raise my ten grandkids. The first is this. And this is probably the one phrase I've known for all over the world. Rules without relationships lead to rebellion. Young people do not respond to rules. They respond to rules in the context of a loving, intimate relationship. Or truth without relationships leads to rejection. Truth without relationships leads to rejection. But here is one that is so true in raising children. Discipline without relationships leads to anger, bitterness, and resentment. Bill Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy. I put it this way. It's the relationship, dummy. It's the relationship. Notice how I watered that down just a little. (laughs) No wonder, David said, for I'm constantly aware of your unfailing love, and I've lived according to your truth. They knew that parents feared the losing of their children through peer pressure and everything. And in culture today, And so they did a major study, multi-millions of dollars. Is there anything that can override these pressures in a young person's life? Peer pressure, societal pressure, advertising, going off to college, movies, internet, gaming, pornography. Is there anything that can trump? That's not a political statement. Is there anything... (laughs) What's another word for Trump anyway? Is there anything that can trump all these outside influences? After all that research, they only found one thing. 
that will override all of those pressures in a child's life. A loving, intimate relationship with one's daddy. Not the mother. The daddy. The last five years of research has reversed 300 years of thinking about the father's influence in a child's life. We've always said it's the mother, it's the mother, it's the mother. No, don't get me wrong. Without the mother, the father couldn't do a whole lot. <laughs> Dartmouth Medical School and several other groups together commissioned a major scientific study to be done of young people. It was called Hardwired to Connect. They wanted to find out what does science say about young people and their behavior and all. And after a lot of research, when they released their study, they changed it from a scientific title to a relational title, Hardwired to Connect. Now, why would they do that? Why would a scientific study? Now, here's the interesting thing. They did no research. Doesn't that sound weird? A scientific study of young people, no research? It was actually brilliant. He said, what do you mean? Well, instead of doing their own research, they took the results of over 160 scientific studies of young people. That's brilliant. And when they did, this is what they found out. Human beings are biologically wired to form relationships at the moment of birth. That when a child comes into the world at the moment of birth, their brain is biologically, physically wired, not emotionally, not spiritually, biologically, physically wired to connect in relationships at the moment of birth. And this study went on to say, scientific study, to impart one's values or truth to an individual, whether your own children, in a classroom, whatever, says you must do two things. This is science speaking. One, develop a loving, intimate connection or relationship with that child. Wow, does that sound like the Bible? Second, if you're going to pass your values on to your child or a teacher to a classroom, whatever, model the very truth or value you want to see ingrained in that child. Kind of sound like Jesus. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Oh, if every parent with a clear conscience could do their child. Live the life that I have lived before you. I'd be out of work working with young people. When Paul said, my children, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Now, one of the most humbling situations happened for me here. Our fourth daughter, uh, we adopted. If we were younger, we'd adopt two or three more. I'm a better person. I'm a more loving man, everything, because we adopted. She was 25 days old. Her mother was 14 when she got pregnant. And chose us to raise her daughter. Oh, I, I don't know what life would be like without Heather. And she was at Biola University in first year. And I was doing a fundraising for a ministry over a weekend in Carlsbad, California. Well, she and other girls had a project with an orphanage they started in Tijuana. So on the way back, she stopped. And we had three hours together. And she had to leave while I was speaking. When I went back to my table, there was a little note for me folded up I unfolded it and I started to cry right in front of everyone she said daddy when I was a little girl 
I wanted Jesus to be just like you. I couldn't stop crying. And all I could say is, thank you, Jesus. If every child felt that way, you wouldn't need the Dream Center. If every child felt that way. Columbia University, after the shootings in Columbine, where was 13, 15 students were killed and teachers, they did a study. They wanted to see how family structure between a single-parent family headed by a mother and a two-parent biological family affected a child's involvement in drugs, alcohol, and extrapolated out to violence. When they finished their study, this is what they learned. Children raised in a single-parent home where the mother is the head are 30% more likely to go into drugs, alcohol, or violence. Now, that's a high percentage. But children who are raised in a two-parent family, biological family, but with a fair-to-poor relationship with a father, they're 68% more likely. A two-parent family, 68% more likely with drugs, alcohol, or violence. You know what it is for a child raised? In a two-parent biological family, but there's a good exit relationship with the father. This is incredible. That child is less than 6% likely to ever go into drugs, alcohol, or violence. It's not just the structure. It's the relationship within the structure that even has a greater impact on a child than the structure. But in the church, we always seem to be dealing with the structure. When the problem basically is relational. No wonder David said, for I'm constantly aware of your unfailing love. And what did that do? And I've lived according to your truth. Again, after the shootings at Columbine, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, commissioned a study to be done. It was called the Classroom Avenger Profile. They wanted to know, can we study the two shooters at Columbine and the 15 school shooters before and come up with a profile for teachers, administrators, and police to detect potential shooters. When they finished their study, they found three basic ingredients to the profile. One, they were all white. I say to my black friends, my Hispanic friends, I'm sorry, you don't fit the profile. Boy, this is called profiling. They're all white. Second, they're all middle class. Not rich, not poor. And so often the violence, everything, well, it's the economic situation of the poor. Well, all 17 shooters came from a middle class family. But the third one was the key. The father, not the father, the mother. The father, in every case, was either distant or not there in the process of raising the children. They left that to the mother. The American Psychological Association says men who say they had a good relationship with their father while growing up react less to day-to-day stress as adults. Let me show you the reality of that. Uh, Where is it? My notes here. I'm sorry. Oops. Here we go. Johns Hopkins, I jumped 
ahead of myself. John Hopkins Medical School, I believe, is one of the top medical schools in medical research in the world. They commissioned a study of two professors, Thomas and Dwozinski, to evaluate 1,377 graduates of Johns Hopkins Medical School over a period of 30 years. Think what that cost to see if they could find a common factor to predict five diseases. In other words, can they look at a child's life and say, if this is true when they're a child, then when they're adult, these five major diseases are off the charts. One, mental illness. Two, hypertension. Three, malignant tumors. Four, coronary heart disease. Five, suicide. Can they look at a child and find a common cause factor to predict these five diseases when a child becomes an adult? After 30 years of research of 1,377 graduates, they found one cause. Thank God it was in your diet. Thank you, Jesus. It was an exercise to him be the glory. You know what it was? the lack of closeness to one's parents, especially the daddy. You say, what? Yeah. The lack of closeness to one's daddy growing up is a number one predictor for these five diseases and many others. I thought, this is ridiculous. Science went too far. So I called Johns Hopkins and couldn't answer why that was true. They gave me the two researchers. <laughs> took them three minutes to convince me why it was true. Why? Because there's something in every person's life, in every one of your lives, every one of you have experienced this to a different degree today. It's called stress. You know what they found? That a child raised in a very loving home, especially in an intimate relationship with a daddy, as that child grows up, he or she can handle stress so much better in their lives. It's relationships. Now, why wouldn't that be true if at the moment of birth, our brain is physically, biologically wired to connect in relationships? Well, if we don't connect in those important relationships, why wouldn't there be physical consequences? There are hypertension, mental illness, coronary heart disease, malignant tumor, and suicide. What about the single mom? I don't know how single moms do it. I just don't. When I think how many times I rescued my wife from our children over the years. <laughs> I'm serious. Times that I'd give Dottie, send her to her parents' house, and I'd take care of the kids for a week so she could get her head screwed on straight. A single mom doesn't have that. But I'll tell you this. I know a lot of single moms, worked with a lot. And some of the best moms parents I know in the world are single moms and those kids are so fortunate they really are and what I say to a single mom I've had the privilege of speaking to more young people than anyone alive by far I've interacted with them everything and I can say this about single moms I can't say it always about single dads I don't think I've ever I'm not saying I haven't but I cannot recall ever meeting a child of a single mother who wouldn't eventually say, I know my mother loves me. And I say to single mothers, milk that for all it's worth 
and you'll come out the other end victorious. But it won't be easy. Raising a child without the involvement of the daddy is one of the most difficult tasks in the world. But single moms can do it, especially if the church comes around them. I can't believe a church that doesn't have a babysitting agency for single moms and single dads. The last thing a single mom needs is a 16-year-old girl coming over and babysit their child. They need a grandma and grandpa coming over that can model love for each other babysitting their child. And that's what the church should be providing. I can't believe a church that once a month wouldn't have a clinic for single moms. Bring your car in. We'll check the tires. We'll check the oil. We'll check everything out for you. Anything that we can fix, we will. What a ministry to single moms. I don't know how single moms doing it, but most single mothers I know are doing an incredible job. But the principle is, it's not easy. You take a child, 12 to 14 years old, without a close relationship to their father, that child is 300% more likely to attempt suicide. It's one of the highest prognosticators. Of a child raised who is 15 to 16 years old without a close relationship with their father? See, most dads don't realize the impact they have in a child's life. And a child 15 to 16 without a close relationship with their father is 400% more likely to attempt suicide? That's awful. That's probably the highest percentage of any indicator. So many are like Lindsay Lohan. Paris Hilton and others. You understand some of their behavior? Take one long look at Lindsay Lohan and one of the lyrics to one of her songs. The lyrics goes like this. And I wear all your old clothes, your polo sweater. I dream of another you, the one who would never leave me alone to pick up the pieces. A daddy to hold me, that's what I needed. That is indicative of so many young girls and young men today. If every child had that in Chicago, it wouldn't be the murder capital of the world. And yet we try to deal with it with government programs and not with relationships. Restoring the father into the home. Helping dads, because most dads grew up without it. And so they don't know how to be a good dad. Look at Michael Jackson, the king of pop. His album, Thriller, I think is still the greatest album ever. <laughs> I do. I think it's the greatest. I think he's one of the greatest performers uh, that ever existed. You want to understand his kind of weird behavior, his trial and everything? Take one long look at his daddy. When he was five years old, his parents started the Jackson Five. And the lead singer, Michael, was five years old. You young people, you don't realize how powerful the Jackson Five were. They were, remember them? They were the greatest singing group in the world at that time. And their crowd showed it. And the lead singer, five years old, the first year after that, he was six. But (laughs) several months before his trial, several things happened. He was being interviewed. I'm not sure, but I think it was MSNBC. And he shared that how when he was five years old, in their first rehearsal, something happened. 
And five-year-old Michael Jackson stopped, turned to his father and said, Daddy, and he said, my father blurted out, I am not your father. I am your manager and don't you ever forget that. And Michael said to this day, I've never forgotten that. Several months before his trial, he was speaking at Oxford University in England. Now that's almost like an oxymoron. He was speaking to 800 students and professors. He was speaking on an issue that a lot of people make jokes of. Jay Leno and others did. Dave Letterman and all. It was called Help the Children Foundation. And about 13 minutes into his talk, before 800 students and faculty, the king of pop started to cry. And then he wept so hard he couldn't speak. The professors, the students felt uneasy, especially the men, a little uneasy. And then out of nowhere, the king of pop said, I just wanted a dad, a father who showed me love, and my father never did that. He never once said, Michael, I love you. You see, Michael never had that chance to see that unfailing love. And it was hard for him, not impossible, but hard for him, not just to know truth, but to live it out. After the thriller came out, Michael Jackson walked the streets of Beverly Hills in Hollywood like one, two, three in the morning. He walked up to strangers one after another and asked them, would you be my friend? He just wanted a daddy, a daddy who loved him. I was in Phoenix, Arizona. Between a Monday and Friday, I spoke in 15, 13 or 15 high school assemblies. Now that's a killer. That's three 80-hour work weeks in five days. And the second assembly was at 12 o'clock noon. Beautiful October day. It was held outside in an area of grass about the size of the, down, the lower level here that slanted down just like this. And at the bottom were two, either two small boulders or two large rocks, which I loved because you could stand on them. It would help to hold the audience and their attention. Well, as they were introducing me, The principal leaned over and whispered in my ear, by the way, Dr. McDowell, there's a group of gothics on campus who will come and break up the assembly and try to throw you off campus. He said, they do it all the time. We kick them out of school, they come back, they do it again. We kick them out of school, they come back. and they do. You'd think somebody would wake up. Not the school folks, the parents. Almost every single problem at school is a reflection of their relationships in their home. Almost every single one. So before you go to criticize some teacher or anything else, take a long look at your own life and your relationship with your children. It's not always the case, but almost always it is. Three of my kids are teachers, and they said, Dad, you cannot believe how pastors' kids behave. He said, these mothers come. My daughter couldn't have done that. I'll have you fired everything else. My son would say, go ahead. You can't believe how big the resume invitation is. My little daughter couldn't do that. My daughter, yeah, your daughter is probably a brat. <laughs> and these mothers that go down there and defend their child ought to be defending the teacher. Not always, but in most cases. And so they introduced me. And within six seconds, 
up comes four goths about 10 feet away. And I mean, they looked scary. They were all dressed in black, heavy black mascara makeup. Their hair was every color and design imaginable. Every part of their body, which was unusual for a goth that wasn't pierced, was tattooed. They had big chains around their neck. The leader had a big iron cross, and they stood there like this. I love that. I would pay people to look that way. Not one kid went potty. Don't tell me kids can't hold it. They wanted to find out what's going to happen to the speaker. So did I. So I changed my talk. Now, nobody knew it. I changed my talk to talk about intimacy. How do you define intimacy? The capacity to be real with another person. No facade, no barrier. That's all a kid wants with daddy and mommy. Just real. No barrier, no facade. So since they set me up, I took a little bit because I figured they probably feared me more than the goss. So I really went into Jesus. And I was just waiting for somebody to sue me. And I really wanted to, when I finished, I stepped down off the big boulder, a small boulder, and my foot hit the grass. The head of the goss leaped towards me. 1,500 students went, ah! And he came up within six inches of my nose. I, 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 I remember well because he had buffalo breath. <laughs> and what 1,500 students and teachers didn't see or hear, he was crying like a baby. It was all I could do to keep from laughing. You say, that's horrible. I know it. But his mascara was running all over his face. And then he would go like this. And pretty soon he looked totally camouflaged. But I kept my composure. And what 1,500 didn't say, hear him say, very respectfully, Mr. McDowell, this is right in front of the entire school, would you give me a hug? Before I could even say yes, my arms at my side, he pinned my arms down, put his head in my right shoulder, and cried like a baby. Seemed like it lasted forever because his, his chains were embedded into my chest. I'm serious. And when he stepped back, you remember what he said. And the next time you go to make any dumb, stupid, condescending remark about how some kid is dressed, all the tattoos, the body piercing, his buns showing above his denims or whatever, before you make some condescending remark and think that makes a man out of you, you remember what this young man said to me. He said, Mr. McDowell, my father never once hugged me or told me he loved me. You see, that goth never had the opportunity to see that unfailing love, which every kid deserves. Therefore, it was hard to him, not, not impossible, but it was hard for him not just to know the truth, but to live it out. I've been constantly aware of your unfailing love, and I've lived according to your truth. In raising my children, three daughters and a son, whenever I saw a problem in their life, an attitude, a behavior, a belief that I needed to correct, I tried always to ask them three questions. And if they answered these three questions positively, I had it made. I could mold them like clay in a potter's hand. I could mold my children. 
But if they answered any one of them negatively or hesitated, I was in trouble. Didn't mean I couldn't impact their lives, but it was so much harder. Here were the three questions. Son, do you know that I love you? Yeah, Dad. Son, do you know that I love your mother? Yeah, Dad. Son, when you get married, in marriage and love and family and sex, do you want with your wife and your children what I have with your mother and what I have with you kids? Yeah, Dad. Then, son, don't do that. It can rob you of it. This is why the Bible says da-da-da-da-da-da. Did you notice the three questions, the uniqueness of them, had nothing to do with content or substance? Had to do with what? Oh, I heard a man say that. Usually it's only women. Relationships. You know what I learned in raising my children? Whenever I saw something I needed to correct in their life, I first needed to elevate the relationship. Then in the context of the relationship, address the problem. Oh, folks. One, it's so it's better results. And second, it's so much more fun. And now my children are doing that with my 10 grandkids. Folks, it's the relationship. It's the relationship. Now, there's exceptions to that. One is my life. In growing up in Union City, Michigan, on the farm right on the city limits, my father was a town alcoholic. I hired knew him sober until I was 20 years old. I grew up seeing my father beat my mother until she was so bloody and weak she couldn't stand up in the gutter in the manure behind the cows. And I'd be screaming, kicking on him, yelling. When I, when I was 8, 9, 10 years old, when I'm strong enough, I'll kill you. From 6 to 13 years of age, every week for 7 years, 2, 3 times a week for 7 years, I was homosexually raped by a man by the name of Wayne Bailey in my own home. When I was six years old, he was hired to be a cook and a housekeeper so my mother could work in the fields and everything. And every time my mother went to the fields or went downtown shopping and they left for the weekend, she'd make me stand in front of Wayne Bailey. In her harsh voice, she would say, Now, Josh, you obey Wayne. You do everything Wayne tells you to do. And if you're disobedient when I get home, you will get a thrashing. What do you do at six, seven, eight, nine years old? You do what Wayne Bailey tells you. At nine years old, I finally got up the courage to tell my mother. She was in the kitchen looking out the window doing the dishes, and I stood behind her. And I told her what was happening to me. She turned around, oh, she was mad at me. She said, I raised you not to lie. She made me go out in the backyard. We had this huge willow tree, break off a willow switch, take my shirt off, and in the kitchen for 30 minutes she whipped me till I finally cried out, I'm lying, I'm lying. That was the darkest day of my life. I shared this a year ago. What brought me out of that was not my mom or dad. First, it was those students, eight students, two professors, that seemed to have a genuine love for each other and a genuine love for those outside their group. With my background, I wanted that. And I made friends with them. This is why a lot of people join gangs. Why a lot of kids join gangs. They just want to belong. 
They want to be loved. want to be accepted. And in the process, they led me to Christ. God used four men in my life. Jim Simpson, Paul Lewis, Faye Logan, Henry Cloud, Steve Arterburn, and one other man. Without those men loving me and being there, I wouldn't be here today. I'd probably be dead. And I never could have had the family that I have. I never knew your children would become your heroes in life. I just admire my three daughters and my son. I, I just, I'm, I'm stymied by their high moral convictions, everything, and their walk with Christ. I never knew I could have a marriage, the marriage that I've had for 45 years this year. I never knew a woman could love a man as much as Dottie loves me. I've never seen it in a Hollywood movie. I've never read it in a romance novel, not that I've read many. My wife has changed my life. She is the greatest epitome to me of unconditional love. And it's just humbling every day. And tonight I'll see her at 8.30 and I can hardly wait to get home. But you know, if I had not seen those relationships and had those six men relate to me, I would have destroyed everything in my life. It's the relationship, dummy. It's the relationship. I've been constantly aware of your unfailing love, Daddy, Mommy, for each other, for the Lord, for me. And I want to live according to your truth. Folks, please take this to heart. There's a book out there that is one of my all type favorites, How to Be a Hero to Your Kids. And my philosophy is I want to be a hero to my children's friends. The more my children's friends respected me and looked at me as a hero, the less they would have negative peer pressure on my children. And it worked. One time my daughter said, oh, daddy, don't worry. He respects you so much he would never do anything that he thought you wouldn't like. I said, yes, I put the fear of Josh in his life. But how to be a hero to your kids. And then, this is one every award out there, the father connection. How you can make the difference in your child's self-esteem and sense of purpose. How you can have an awesome impact in your child. The father different. The problem is, most men don't read. I've never read one of Dobson's books. I know everything he said. Why? My wife reads them, highlights them. I can read them in 10 minutes. I just read the highlight. I'm serious. I'm not joking. You know what I learned, old pastor? My wife didn't outline the best things in the book. She highlighted what she saw lacking in my life. <laughs> it took me a couple years to grasp that because there were other things much better, but it's not what I needed. She would highlight what I needed to change in my life. I resembled that. I resented that, I mean, no. And then there's a CD out there. Building relationships that transform families. 
a talk by my son, how to touch the heart of a teenager. Then by my wife. Oh, to me, it's just about the greatest talk I've ever heard by anyone. I've heard it probably 25 times. In fact, she's doing it Monday to a huge mops group, and they're going to put it on the Internet. It's called How to Delight in Your Child. Oh, my gosh, she shares the most incredible stories of her mother. I thought her mother was a little spacey. But let me tell you, what a mother she was. And then a message by me and how you build those relationships. Now, on the church website tomorrow, from what I understand, they'll have up there uh, about 14 pages called The Seven A's of Parenting. That's part two of this talk. That's how do you build those relationships as a single parent or a married parent. How do you build those relationships? Has all the stories from my wife, everything inserted under each one of the seven A's of parenting. And maybe it'll help you. Thank you for the privilege, Pastor, of coming back to this church. God bless each one of you.